But where are you really from? A podcast about the Asian American struggle. Hi, I'm Jesse Lin. And I'm Angela Lin, and welcome back to another episode of But Where Are You Really From? Today is a special episode, so we like to do once a season. We want to make sure that we shine a spotlight on the listener community or the broader you know, Asian American POC community and let you guys submit stories from your own experiences and give you the spotlight to tell your story and share that with our community. So as a reminder, this is a reflections episode where we reflect on other people's experiences. So I'll read you their stories and then we will kind of pepper in our our color commentary as we always do. So the first submission is from a listener named Jessica and it starts like this. Hello, hello. Hope your week is off to a great start. Really digging your podcast thus far and loving hearing everyone's stories of how they navigated the in-between and their relationships with their parents. I'm submitting a story about my childhood growing up, mainly tying it to your podcast themes of mental health and filial piety. It's a little bit messy and all over the place, but here we go. (laughs) I guess to preface everything, I basically was raised single-handedly by my dad. My parents are divorced and my sister went to live went with my mom to another country. And growing up, I remember wanting to be the perfect daughter so that when I visited my mom and sister or met my friend's parents, I was representing how great of a parent my dad was. Mm. I grew up predominantly in an Asian suburb where other kids my age were also first generation Asian Americans. So a lot of us were taught to keep up appearances Mm. of a healthy, successful family. In my young mind, being perfect meant not being a burden in any capacity. And although I never was conscious of it then, I came to realize that a lot of it equated to me bottling my emotions and learning to not bother others for emotional support, Hmm. including my dad. This was my way of helping and silently expressing thanks for the sacrifices he's made coming to America and trying to provide a better life for me. Let's talk a bit about my dad. My dad's pretty in line with the description of your typical Asian father. He believed in the American dream, rarely showed his emotions, and wasn't the best at holding conversations that went beyond the topics of school, money, and whether or not I... Pretty typical. I remember whenever I missed my mom and sister and cried in front of him, he'd tell me something along the lines of, don't cry, you have to be strong. It's not good to cry. Oh, boy. My dad had grown up poor, and to get to where he is today, his mindset was, what else can I do? Crying will not change my situation. I had to be strong to help the rest of my family. No one else can help me but me. Looking back, I think that because he didn't have anyone to rely on when he was younger, he was basically supporting his family back in China as the eldest son, Mm. him telling me to essentially suck it up was the only thing he knew how to do. In many ways, my childhood mirrors a lot of the themes Asian Americans faced growing up, keeping up appearances of being a model family, the communication barrier between generations, especially language and culture, and especially the hustle to make it in America as well, and especially for young men learning to hold back your emotions. But one thing I wanted to bring up and highlight through my story is that as I grew older and pushed myself to have important conversations with my dad about mental health and emotional well-being, e.g. confronting my true feelings about how the divorce impacted me Mm. and how lonely I felt growing up, I noticed that over the years, my dad's mindset has gradually changed as well. 
He's more understanding about letting emotions out and often tells me to make sure that I am physically, emotionally, and mentally healthy on our phone calls. In part, I think this has to do with how mental health has become less of a taboo topic in both the United States as well as in parts of Asia. But I also think this mindset shift comes from my dad experiencing the empty nest syndrome and allowing himself to be more expressive with me, (laughs) which seems to be familiar to what my other Asian American friends have experienced when talking to their parents about mental health and young adult worries. Excited for your next episode. Keep it up, Jessica. (laughs) There's so much to unpack in this. Yeah, there's a lot here. Oh, my God. Um, well, can we talk about the, like, since she ended on this, the uh, softening up of this, like, hard mm-hmm. exterior of parents when yeah. you grow up? I can totally vibe with that because my dad, well, both my parents, like, I feel like the way that Asian parents raise you is, like, very strict and also very, like, what Jessica was saying, kind of, like, no emotion, like, suck it up, you know, keep a hard exterior, keep up the appearances kind of thing and so I always was kind of scared of my parents growing up honestly because they Mm. didn't show that kind of affection and then now that I'm an adult and we like don't live near each other and they like don't have much else to do with their they're retired you know so they're just like worry about me all the time and then when we do talk it is much softer and it's like how are you like are you sure you're okay that kind of stuff and it's just like a they're like different parents when they're older. <laughs> yeah, I think part of it is just like when you're getting older, you get a little bit softer around a mm. lot of things. And personally, like the way that I see it is that I feel like our parents came to this country to have a good time of it. And they quickly found that it was not going to be like quick, easy, <laughs> good money times. And I feel like that that can really harden a lot of people to be like, oh, no, like to impart to my children, like it's, you know, it's a lot of work. It's really hard. And I think there's a little bit of an overcorrection because obviously it's very hard for them because they just immigrated here. But for us, we were born here. So it's a much smoother process. And at the end of the day, I think all my parents really needed to soften up was to understand that like I could take care of myself. I could have a successful successful career (laughs) I could have like a loving partner and like like, once they realized that I could find these things for myself and like I was independent enough to seek these things for myself they really like let the foot off the pedal really because I think they were really just pushing so hard to make sure that I could set myself up with all these things feeling like they themselves didn't quite Mm. get all that you know even your dad your dad you know you know (laughs) Let, let's say soften is a relative term. It's like less less judgmental, like definitely more like conversational. There's there's still some like advice giving where I'm like, this is not merited, but yeah. a, a few fewer prickles than yes, less prickly, things. less prickly. <laughs> oh, Daddy Lynn. Um, another thing she said that really struck with me is like she felt the responsibility to like uh, play her part in keeping mm-hmm. up the appearances for her dad. And one thing she didn't explicitly say, but I could, I inferred a little bit is like, because she's talking about keeping up appearances, AKA saving face. Right. And right. like uh, divorce is pretty taboo in traditional Asian culture, right? Mm -hmm. So I feel like even though she didn't say it, I could imagine she probably felt this like 
already she and her dad were at a disadvantage in terms of like the social circles because they probably were like, you know, quote unquote tainted already because they were not a like nuclear, typical nuclear family. Mm -hmm. So then she had to like keep everything else as like normal and like excellent as possible so that there weren't further points against her and her dad. Yeah, I definitely feel that way as well. I mean, divorce is hard no matter what. And I feel like even now it's like a pretty, I don't want to say it's a taboo subject, but there's like a a lot of negative connotations Mm -hmm. associated with it as opposed to just like, you know, we don't vibe together anymore and we don't want to spend our Mm -hmm. lives together anymore, which is what it means to me. And I remember like I had friends who, whose parents were divorced and it, they were treated a little differently in conversations because there was always like either kind of like unwanted sympathy or like kind of like, oh, like what happened? Like there's a lot of speculation around the personal life. And I think that that can be very intrusive and additional pressure as yeah. well. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, great story, Jessica. Thanks for writing in. Appreciate you sharing an intimate, I'm sure, memory from your past. So Hopefully it helps other people as well. Thank you. All right. Okay. So moving on to story number two, this one is from DJ and it's titled Immigration Story Midwest Edition. When I tell people that I'm from Ohio, the first thing they ask is either why or how. (laughs) Before (laughs) I was born, my mom was selected to participate in an AFS program. I'm going to pretend like I know what that is. For exchange teachers. (laughs) She taught English at her school in Xinjiang and was placed in the small town of, I don't even know how to pronounce this, and this is English. uh, Berea. Berea, Berea, Ohio. (laughs) For her exchange program. After her semester in the U.S., she went back to China, where I was born a few years later. My parents tell me that they, like many immigrant parents here, plan to immigrate to the U.S. to provide better opportunities for me. The Chinese educational system was crushing and grueling, squashing many opportunities for children to develop well-rounded interests and skills beyond rote memorization of equations, facts, poetry, etc. (laughs) Since my mom already had a taste of the quote-unquote American dream during her exchange program, they decided to pursue that dream full-time. When I was about five years old, my mom again set off on her own for the U.S., back to Ohio, the only U.S. that she knew. Oh, my. (laughs) Yeah, very different U.S. than we know. Um, At the time, the journey took close to three days of travel. Jesus Christ. Uh, First, a bus or train from... uh, Alatai, what the fuck is that? Sure. Where's that? Alatai to Urum, Urumqi. Oh, Jesus. I'm butchering this. Um, second, a flight from, again, Urumqi, Urumqi, not sure, to Beijing. And third, a flight from Beijing to a large East Coast city. Fourth, a flight from that oh, city God. to the final destination, Cleveland, Ohio. Wow. All right. She was able to secure a job at a local university and soon began making plans to bring my dad and I over. Oh, shit. She did this herself. I was, like, imagining that this was, like, with the fam for, like, all together. All right. Good job, mom. OG goat. 
right? I'll skip the logistics here, but it took over 10 months of visa applications, written testimonials from coworkers, friends, etc., and many dollars spent on immigration lawyers for my dad and I to finally receive the necessary paperwork to come visit her in the U.S. 10 months is a lifetime for a five-year-old. Oh, that's so yeah. sad. There's so much that I can share about my first impressions after getting off the plane in Cleveland and seeing my mom again, but I guess I'll stick to my first year in elementary school. My first day of first grade was a blur, but I remember that I was wearing a Chi Pao styled, <gasps> stylized outfit. So cute, right? So cute. My mom packed me dumplings in a thermos <sighs> for lunch, and my teacher's name was Mrs. Sepper. That sounds like a first grade uh, teacher's yeah, name. Uh-huh. <laughs> in my first few weeks at school, I would take home many, many notes from Mrs. Sepper. Topics ranging from DJ did not hear her lunch today to a student was staring at DJ, so she started yelling at him and running after him. There was even an episode where I kicked a boy square between the legs for tauntingly calling me Chinese girl while pointing and laughing. I think there was a note home about that too, maybe even a visit to the principal. But to be honest, I don't think I was that phase given that I had no idea what anyone was saying. So from my point of view, it was just a bunch of foreign looking adults gesticulating wildly and trying to communicate with me in their gibberish language. Retrospectively, both my mom and I are quite pleased that I stood up for myself instead of withdrawing in fear or shame for being different. Apparently, I was very much not a model minority <laughs> at a young age. You go, girl. <laughs> or for you, Glenn Coco. Yes. All right. I do not doubt that I was the first Asian person that they've ever interacted with in real life. Uh, yeah, Ohio. <laughs> <laughs> Berea, Ohio. Wherever Where the F that is. Yeah. Um, I was as interesting to them as an alien, I suppose. For me, they were strange little kids, and school was a strange place where we played way more than we learned. I mean, how can these six-year-olds still not know their times table <laughs> or how to tie their own shoes? Also, why are the teachers praising that child's artwork of what is supposed to be a horse when it just looks like a huge blob of nothing? Oh, my God. I think growing up as virtually the only Asian within a 30-mile radius has given me a different perspective from the coastal Asian communities. Quite, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, rarely did my family and I have the opportunity to celebrate our culture with a like-minded community. Oh, that must have been hard. Mm-hmm. Um, For my dad, it was particularly lonely and isolating since he was a doctor in China and needed to be relicensed in the U.S. to practice. Coming from a base of zero English to passing highly technical medical certification tests in a second language, he remains a huge inspiration to me. Also, my mom, her tenacity and sheer guts to leave everything she's ever known to strike out in a foreign country with no community around to support her, I have no words. For many years, we lived on a single income as my dad learned the language to pass his certifications. Wow. But my parents never once made me feel like we lacked anything. In contrast, my childhood was full of joy and a wealth of love and happiness. This is kind of everywhere, and there's a lot more that I don't really know how to write down, but hope this is helpful, DJ. Wow. Well, first (laughs) off, just like super huge hats off to DJ's parents for doing that. I mean, like all of our parents did this, but like to be the first person to come over to bring other people over, I know that that's like a really, really full of pressure and difficult Mm -hmm. situation. Um, So really hats off to uh, to DJ's parents. 
I also want to point out that like it is very difficult to bring your family here and yeah. to immigrate here, even back then when there was a large wave of immigration. Like, so I think that a lot of people aren't thinking about actually, you know, when you hear about immigration stories, how difficult it is to actually become naturalized and a citizen yeah. of the U.S., even if you have the right skills to make it here. Apparently, obviously her parents did because they came over, relearned their skills, and now they're Jesus. in their professions again. So talented. I know. Yeah, there are so many things in this one. It's like, well, first of all, like you said, I'm so like impressed with her parents, but very much her mom, because like mm -hmm. all of her parents did it, but a lot of them did it together. Like they came over together yeah. or it was like our dads. And I'm not saying it's like easier for men. Obviously, it's always going to be lonely no matter what, if you're like the one person coming over to a foreign country. But like, it's very rare for a woman to be the one who has to like lead her family yeah, into yeah. a foreign place. Like you go, Mrs. DJ's mom. Um, and the other thing is like, Jesus Christ, her dad relearning a medical degree in yeah. a language he didn't know until he arrived. Like that is mm -hmm. so insane because actually I remember when I lived in New York, you know, like all the taxi drivers and not, now there's uber drivers everywhere as well so like they also have their stories but i remember i've been in many taxis where like it would be um someone who immigrated to the u.s and they would tell me stories about how they were like doctors and like lawyers yeah, yeah, and, like yeah. really Absolutely. insane professions uh you know from their home countries and they're like now i drive a taxi because i my degree isn't valid here and it's yeah. like too hard for me to relearn that whole thing right now and make a living you know and it's just like it's so sad so it's i'm very like in awe of her dad and also um in awe of her mom once again for like having enough drive to be able to financially support their family while her dad was taking the like unpaid time he needed mm -hmm. to relearn that profession. Mm -hmm. Pretty crazy. Yeah. And I just want to close. I think that we're like the most awesome people ever because <laughs> like, look, like we're people brought from the both of best worlds, right? We have, as DJ mentioned, there's the escape from the more traditional educational system, which is rote memorization, mm. equations, facts, poetry. Girl, we got that. You know we That's do. That's true. We also went to school here. We did extracurriculars. We did music. We did all these other things. So I support us because I think <laughs> we're like the best of both worlds, including all of our listeners. Yeah. Holla. So our last story comes from Annie. And here we go. In terms of heritage and media representation, I recently read an amazing article from Eater about how this now normalized and commodified phenomenon of the global pantry, and specifically about how ethnic foods become trendy when presented in a palatable Western lens. The article referenced is called Alison Roman, Bon Appetit, and the Global Pantry Problem. This article articulated a lot of my feelings on the topic because I'm particularly interested in the important role of food in Asian cultures as a ceremony and celebration of our heritage and how it's intimately tied to identity for a lot of us. It spurred me to do a minor in food systems in college. Okay. Interesting. Seeing more diverse food representation nowadays is great, but there's a part of me that's definitely salty about getting taunted by my peers in elementary school for bringing the stinky food or the wiggly squishy mash of noodles while other kids had Uncrustables. 
<laughs> I've been grappling with this concept of how cultural things can only be spotlighted in the right way that's approachable when it's from a white person preaching to a white audience. Like maybe it's mm-hmm. too intimidating coming from the actual source. And another aspect is how certain items like matcha or turmeric or goji berries get picked out of their respective cultures and labeled as cool. I also felt some type of way when I was drinking kombucha for months before realizing it actually comes from ancient China. I felt so bamboozled that I had been a consumer for all that time without knowing. So I asked my family their thoughts on it. And my grandmother said they brew it in buckets and drank it as kids, but it wasn't at all revered. It was pretty commonplace in her experience. They didn't believe me that it had become so mainstream in the U.S. and cost so much until I pointed out the entire refrigerated shelves dedicated (laughs) to booch at Whole Foods. Too true. And I think I wanted to really feel proud and connected to my culture when I brew at home now, but I know that in actuality, I only ever got into it because of its rise in the Western world, Mm -hmm. that it's been decoupled from its roots. I don't think that I really would have found out about it otherwise. And it's sad that I've never seen branding from the big booch companies tying back to its original origins. And in terms of representation, just thinking on who popularizes and profits from so many quote unquote authentic restaurants and gets praised for bringing new cuisines to light. The last thing is that I just don't necessarily see a solution to it at the end of the day. I still feel appreciative that people are more interested and open now to global cuisines. And I think that's progress. But as a starting point, I'd like to see those in positions of power with the platform do better. Educate themselves on cultural context, and if they're profiting off of the commodification of other cultures, they should have a responsibility to support and uplift the communities along the way. And I want to be able to access resources to support and uplift fellow POC who are chefs or bloggers or running small businesses. Sorry, this is becoming just a rant, so I hope that was comprehensible at least. But I wouldn't be offended if it doesn't make the cut. Lol. But you made it. You made it. (laughs) Oh, man. As someone, we've talked about this a lot, but like as someone who didn't want to own her identity, her like Asian identity Mm -hmm. until older, now I'm like trying to reconnect with it. And a lot, a big part, like I've talked about, is through food and like learning how to cook a lot of like traditional Chinese and Taiwanese um, dishes. And I don't know how to feel about like my favorite cookbook that I use right now is written by a white woman (laughs) and she, but she trained and has lived in China for over 20 years. So she's like probably Mm. more Chinese than I am. You know what I mean? So like Mm -hmm. there's a part of me that's like, Oh, I'm connecting with my roots. And then the other part of me is like, yeah, but I'm only able to connect with it because this white woman has written this book that I can read and like easily, um, emulate as opposed to like if I had asked my mom back in the day she would have pointed me to like Chinese recipes in Chinese and I'd be like I don't know what this is you know what I mean so there's like yeah I feel that gratitude and a little bit of like unease that it has to be through this like western lens yeah it's more approachable that it's western but I mean like in a sense there's no way around it because like we would never be able to read a Chinese cookbook And when you said that, I was like, I remember that just triggered like a memory from like forever ago where my mom, I think, was cooking from a Chinese cookbook. And it was like, you know, if you go to like one of those rinky dink uh, Chinese takeout places Mm -hmm. in New York or or wherever, and they have those like neon backlit pictures of the food. It was like that in a cookbook. (laughs) And it's just, yeah. So I'm like... As authentic as that probably was, it was not accessible for us. Yeah. 
And so there definitely is this kind of like tension of like people who may not be people of color taking a shine to something, becoming like an expert at it, Mm -hmm. and then making it more accessible to everyone, including people of color who may not be super connected to their roots. Yeah. And, you know, I I am like caveating every the, the shit out of everything. <laughs> but like, I do agree with you. Like, I, I think there is a lot of benefit to people like Fuchsia something is the one who wrote the cookbook that I that mm. I follow. And um, I'm very grateful to her for giving me access to my culture, even though she is not Chinese. But mm-hmm. then there's the other half of it where like to what Annie's saying, like people profiting off these like very deeply rooted cultural food items or like traditional cuisines or whatever that like they don't even really know where it came from. One of the things she mentioned that like really did bother me when it first became popular was the goji berries thing because I don't Mm. know if you remember when we were kids, goji berries is in every single Chinese medicinal soup. Oh, yeah. And yeah, I would dread my mom dropping that shit. It, well, it wasn't the goji berry specifically. It was like, it would be mixed with like a bunch of other medicinal yeah, properties, right? And be like bitter and be always when I'm like sick or like she's trying to like make me taller or like whatever, right? <laughs> and um, so like when goji berries came out and we're like, here's this new superfood, like add it to your smoothies. I was like, are you fucking kidding me right now? Like, you don't even know that this, because like, Chinese medicine has been around for Always thousands of years yeah. and yeah, goji berries is a staple. And I'm like, you don't even know where this came from and you're just adding it to your like super food smoothie. And that, that did bother me when that kind of thing came out. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's really hard. I feel like the opposite can be done as well. And I actually saw it recently. I got targeted with a hard seltzer ad called I think it was called lunar seltzer and it's basically like a white claw but it just has Asian flavors and the whole (laughs) shtick was like Asian flavors for Asian people and I was like snap it's like reversed happening we're taking (laughs) white people stuff and we're slapping some Asian flavors on it and we're saying it's for Asian people I guess that's true man I guess that's true because Asians gotta hustle man and we like find a way to profit on whatever we can figure out how to profit on and I do remember talking with my dad about like how does he feel about you know Chinese American food you know like the Chinese yeah. ripoff mm-hmm. and like Panda Express and whatever and he's like I wish I had come up with that idea yeah. you know what I mean like while he's also at the same time as like there's this is trash and not actual Chinese food yeah, I guess there's a level of respect you have to give people who figure out how to like <laughs> commoditize yeah. and monetize off this stuff. Mm. Yeah. I mean, the last thing I'll say is that I, I think it's really great when you have people like Fuchsia or whoever you mentioned yeah, yeah, yeah. in your cookbook who are like really preserving the heritage mm-hmm. in a way for more people, especially, and I want to piggyback off the thing when your dad said, because your dad was it's like traditions, who cares about traditions <laughs> if you can make a buck, basically. And so it's like, there, there's like stuff like that, where it's like nice that someone actually came back and like cared enough about the heritage of it to try and like preserve it. And then obviously, there's the other side where it's like, kind of not great when someone just picks something mm-hmm. out of some out of a culture where it's been a thing for a really long time. And doesn't bother to explain where it came from and they simply like proposed it like I've always like this is my idea 
Cool. Well, we really enjoy listening to your stories. This is a Absolutely. good variety and you guys have such rich experiences. Um, so I'm going to go out of order of our usual shtick, but I'm going to use this inspiration to remind all of you to just always write us in. We, we're just banking these stories for the next episode and, and we love to hear from you. So if you have something that you want to share about your experience growing up, in this country or a different country or whatever you want to tell us, write us in at tell us where you're from at gmail.com. The your is Y-O-U-R-E. Awesome. So for our fortune cookie segment, we wanted to take a moment also to reflect and think about basically what the process of making this podcast has meant <laughs> to us, like things we've learned or things we really enjoyed so I will start off by saying I really love the episodes where we have guests mm-hmm. because I feel like every time we have a guest, I always learn something yes. new. And even if it's just an interesting thing about the guest, I feel like that's such a rewarding thing to tap into someone else's perspective. Like DJ's story, I know she's not a guest right now, but I'm like just an Asian person in the nineties in Ohio, like my brain is like, does not understand like this perspective, (laughs) just having these like flashes of insights into different things is like so interesting because I don't pretend that I'm really an expert at anything. Mm -hmm. And I always love talking to people and finding out like new things about them, new things about the world, like new things about this like crazy situation that we're living in. So I think that that's like probably the most rewarding thing. Yeah, I definitely will just double down on that. Like, I think you and I have learned a lot of things with this podcast, some technical things like how to edit in GarageBand, just like all these things. But definitely the most rewarding is connecting with and like finding this community. I don't think I really expected to have the the community that we have. Like, I kind of expected like, five of our friends to listen to this and like, but as a favor to us and like no one would actually be listening and we were just doing it for fun. But I really love hearing from people, but also like you said, I think when we have guests on and, and even just you and me, like when we talk, we get so deep. I feel like on these topics that like you learn so much about yourself, the other person and It's just making me, it's forcing me to have a moment every week to like be in the, be in the present moment and like appreciate someone else's story. Because I feel like in our day-to-day lives, it's all just about like cranking out work, like, okay, now I'm tired, like turn on the Netflix. Like it's all like distractions and you're just like surface level on a lot of things. And when even if it's just you and me talking, like I feel like our friendship has developed so much more, even though I've known you since we're five, like, because we're having such real discussions. And then Mm -hmm. to your point, when we bring on a guest, it's like, you're putting your entire attention on this person for the hour or whatever that we have with them. And like, really digging into like, what is that special experience that you had? And what can I derive from that? And like, a lot of times it makes me feel, you know, a strong kinship with them. And like, it makes me feel 
closer to my Asian and Asian American identity than like I, I ever had before this. So I mm. did not expect that, that like doing this podcast would make me feel like so much more connected with the community to you, to my identity, like all this stuff. Oh, yeah. warm and fuzzies. Yeah. Building off the warm and fuzzies, uh, please come back next week because we do intend to keep doing this for as long as you listen to us. So come back next week for a fresh new app. And until then, Zai Jin, bitches. bitches.